Well, greetings, everyone, and especially happy Mother's Day to all the fantastic mothers out there. It is a real privilege to just uh, celebrate this day with you, and we want to salute you. We want to honor you. We want to thank you for just the amazing way that you have uh, been mothers to so many, and uh, we salute you, mothers, today and celebrate you so much. Uh, my name's Roger, and uh, along with my wife, Nikki, we give leadership to a very unruly very difficult to manage, very uh, complicated, and uh, often very emotional family. We got three daughters, six, four, and two, and they are wild and wonderful. Uh, we also give leadership, uh, along with our eldership team, to the Common Ground Church Bloberg congregation, and they are far more easy to lead than uh, our own family. And uh, it's just fantastic to be together today. It's fantastic to bring the Word of God today, and it's fantastic to stand on the shoulders of a fantastic message like Ryan brought to us last week. He spoke to us and reminded us out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 just about the wonders of the, uh, the comfort that God brings. We, we saw last week that uh, God is a God of comfort. We didn't just see that He's a God of comfort, but that He chooses and delights in comforting us. And then He also calls us to comfort others. And, and today we carry on looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And we don't just see that God is a God of comfort, but we also see that God wants to put hope inside of us. And, and hope, man, is a really big word at this point in our history of, of the world, in fact. And, and I wonder if I were to ask you the question, what does hope look like for you right now? Now, the answer to that question would be radically indicative of the way that you're living right now, your emotional state, uh, what you're feeling, what you're thinking at the moment. Hope is, is so fundamental to, to what it means to, to be alive today and how we're facing the challenges that we're facing. Now, Paul was facing some radical challenges of his own, and uh, boy, did they bring him to some really dark experiences. We'll see just now that he was despairing in, in some radical ways. But he speaks into this wonderful concept of hope. And, and he wants each of us to enjoy hope. But, but he's, he's facing an interesting challenge. You see, the context of Paul's letter is he's writing to a group of people called the Church of Corinth. And in the Church of Corinth, there are a smaller group of people who are pointing at Paul and are saying something to this effect. Hey, hey guys, we can't trust Paul. He, he can't possibly be a true apostle. L let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. He can't be an apostle because look at him. He suffers way too much. I mean, look at all these other guys. They don't suffer half as much as Paul. Yeah, sure, Paul preached the gospel. Sure, he started the church here in Corinth. But just look at him. Look how much he suffers. You just, surely he can't be the flag bearer for our faith. And people were starting to catch wind of this teaching. We're starting to ask questions and go, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe we can't trust Paul. Look how much difficulty he's going through. Just the other day, I bumped into a friend and, and he too is feeling some real challenges at this stage in, in, in our history. His business is, is taking the pressure of the coronavirus and the economy. And he too mentioned that even in himself, as things start to feel uh, like, like the world is clamping down on him and there's a sense of despair, the question begs to be asked in his heart, am, am I legit? Am I a real follower of Jesus in this time? Has God maybe just moved on from me? 
Is, is, are the real Christians the ones who, whose lives seem to just be squeaky clean, always happy, always prospering? And of course, we've got a backdrop of a, a, something called the prosperity gospel that makes us subconsciously often believe that maybe if we're suffering, we're doing something wrong in our faith. Hey, this is a very dangerous teaching. And Paul is writing to the church in Corinth to, to show the message of the gospel is not incongruent with a level of trial. It's incongruent with hopelessness. The message of the gospel comes filled with hope regardless of the trial. You see, we're being thrown all kinds of messages. And, and one of the biggest messages, if you go scroll your Facebook feed at the moment, is a message of positivity. I mean, have a look at some of these different things that I've just come across. Stay strong, be positive. Is that going to carry you through um, the, the challenges of coronavirus and a difficult business? Or positive vibes only. Put that over your mantelpiece. Hey, is that going to carry you through difficult seasons? I, I, I suggest maybe not. Always be positive. Yes, sir. And we tend to have this notion that positivity can carry us. And yet positivity doesn't have the ability that Paul seems to suggest hope does. The ability to carry us, to, to move our souls through real trials. Hey, I'm not suggesting pessimism is the answer to all of our challenges. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be positive in the right kinds of way at the right times. But Paul is going to take us this, uh, today into something of a much deeper source. And today I want to uh, open up in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And, and look with me here as Paul begins to explain something of what he's been feeling as he's been going through this trial. He says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He describes this season and he puts it right out there. He said, it felt like we were experiencing a near-death moment. Our souls were despairing. This was a difficult season. You know, Paul actually doesn't indicate exactly what he was going through. Uh, commentators speculate maybe it was the uh, persecution in Ephesus. Maybe it was the rejection of numbers of people in the Corinthian church, a, a church he loved so much and now had distanced them, themselves and were asking questions of him. We're not exactly sure where this despair came from, where this, this death-like experience came over his soul from. We, we still speculate to this day, but what we do know is that it was real and it was felt in some of the deepest parts of him. I think for many of us in this season, I mentioned a friend and, and for, for others are feeling a kind of sense of, of a death kind of experience, the, the darkness weighing over some of our lives in this time. I wonder if it's just the anxiety of the health of, of vulnerable friends or family members. Maybe it's uh, that sense of joblessness or, or cashlessness. Or just going crazy with the, the overload of information and negativity and questions and political uh, drama that's all around us. There's just so much. Or maybe like a friend of mine once described, it feels like just death by a thousand paper cuts. It just feels like you can't quite articulate exactly why you feel a little down, like it's, it's a trial that you're going through. But everywhere you look, in your experience of life, there's just myriad of paper cuts and your soul is feeling it. Hey, maybe for some of us, you're just staying buoyant and, and we celebrate with you. Uh, but today I want to try our best to, to take us to Paul's source. 
Look at what happens here in verse 10. He speaks about a hope and he says, In him we have set our hope. There is a hope today. And I I hope that I can take you with me into that joy-filled hope that Paul calls us to, into a magnificent story. And to start, I want to speak about Paul's source of hope. Where we're heading today is I want to speak about Paul's source of hope. And then ahead, I want to talk about three evidences of hope that we'll get to in a moment. But firstly, let's look at Paul's source of hope. Paul's source of hope. And, And really... This is important to understand that that Paul didn't look at the message of the gospel. And he didn't look at it and go, you know what? The gospel is just fantastically good advice for the world. You see, uh, many people may view the Christian gospel a bit like that. If you go to church, you know, you're going to get helped in, you know, fixing your marriage and sorting out your relationships. And and maybe you're going to learn how to pray, which are all true things. They're all true things. But Paul didn't view the gospel in that way. He, he viewed the gospel not as advice, but as news. And there's a radical difference between advice and news. Let me suggest to you uh, and help you understand. Uh, think about, for example, our president. Imagine the president came on TV and said to us, we have discovered a vaccine for the coronavirus. Huh. You would have two major components to this news that you would have heard. You would have said, we heard an announcement that there has been a vaccine that has been found. This is all hypothetical. Don't quote me on this. But also, you wouldn't just be looking back at news you heard. You would be looking forward at the date that this thing would be unrolled and and brought out into our country. And the present, the experience of being sandwiched between news you heard and news of something that's coming up, is a deeply joy-filled experience. Hey, the word gospel really came onto the map in a profound way just 30 years before Jesus came about, 30 BC. Not, not before Corona, before Christ. This amazing story unfolds. There, there were the east and the west of Rome were divided between two main leaders. There was Antony on the east and there was uh, Octavian, who was soon to be known as Augustus um, Caesar, on, on the West. And these two uh, guys were, were fighting and jostling for rulership over the whole Roman Empire. Ultimately, it came about that Octavian, Augustus Caesar, won a magnificent victory off the coast of Greece, and he took over the whole Roman Empire. It was that one battle that brought about the, the kind of finality that he was now officially the true emperor of the Roman Empire. Empire. Now, there was something amazing that would happen after a battle of that magnitude. You see, Augustus Caesar would now send his heralds. That's what Paul described himself. That's what Jesus described the, the message of the gospel as, as, a, as a message to be heralded. And it was sent out by a herald that, that he would leave the battlefield and he would go back to Rome and he would tell two pieces of news. Firstly, he would say, Something has happened. And something is going to happen. Firstly, Augustus Caesar has won the battle. And that means he is the true emperor. That's something that has happened. But not only that, something is going to happen. And it's going to happen shortly. Listen carefully. He is coming back to Rome And this was world-changing news. Literally, if you were a Roman citizen in that time, you would find yourself going, oh my goodness, 
Those who were originally sided with Antony would have found themselves going, oh, the world has changed forever. Things will never be the same again. I, I, I used to be with Antony. Now uh, Augustus is the king. What do I do? Do I flee? Do I find a way to now show my allegiance to the new and true emperor? What do I do? The people who were originally supporters of, of Augustus would have found themselves going out onto the streets celebrating. He has won and he is coming back. Let's prepare this uh, city for a celebration because the king is coming back and he's going to sit on the throne. Some of the language that was used around that time was that Augustus was divine. He was a savior for the Roman Empire. <laughs> now, read that into Jesus. Read that into Paul's writing. Suddenly, we understand that this word gospel was infused with a sense of news. That herald would have arrived into the city, would have said, I have gospel. I have good news of this, this person who has saved the world. It was literally divine language. And Jesus contentiously says, no, I have gospel news. I have the good news. And into uh, the ministry of Paul, Paul describes this news in such a profound way. He says something has happened and something is going to happen for which the world will forever be different. And that is going to bring hope into the souls of every human being. Paul was a herald of good news. And it was into that story that he came to the world and he said, the Messiah, Jesus, he, he did what we could never do. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And astoundingly, he is risen. He rose again. It's magnificent. Something has happened in the past. But Paul wouldn't just end at that. He would carry on and he'd say, but something is also about to happen. He is returning. And sandwiched between the wonderful news of he is risen and he is returning is this incredible experience of hope because God has moved in on the world and he has not left the world to its own devices. He has shown that he is a God of love and he has risen and he is returning and the world in between will never be the same again. Listen to how N.T. Wright puts it. He says, the good news that Jesus announced like the good news that his first followers announced about him, was not a piece of advice, however good. It was about something that had happened, about something that would happen as a result, and about the new moment between the two, the moment in which people were in fact living, whether they realized it or not. Something has happened, said Paul. He spent his life to the point of getting into positions where he despaired of his own life. He willingly did it because he said something has happened and something is going to happen. He is risen and he is returning. And that is where Paul founded his hope upon. That's the source of hope. You see, the gospel is not good advice to try fix a few parts of our lives. The gospel is news into which our lives are inserted in the most magnificent and beautiful way. So how, how do you or I know that we've got hope inside of us? The, the kind of hope that Paul describes in his ministry. Well, let's look and let's learn from his life because Paul seemed to receive trials in a whole different way. That evidenced a hope that was living so deep inside of him. And I want to suggest three evidences that hope is living. And I want to suggest that maybe in your life you're going, maybe I don't have hope. There's going to be some coaching to find that hope. Maybe it's, it's a case of reminding ourselves, have we said yes to this good news? 
It, it's the kind of do not pass begin unless you have found yourself looking at this news and going, he is risen. He is returning. And, and this is news now for which my whole life is different. So what's the first evidence of this incredible uh, hope? It's firstly that trials are received as opportunities to uproot self-reliance. Verse 9 says it so beautifully. Paul writes of their challenge and he says, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Isn't that amazing language? That Paul says that this, uh, this trial that they went through was given almost as a kind of gift. It was given to make us, he says. Spot that language? To make us rely not on ourselves. He, he looked at a trial that he went through and he saw that it was a kind of opportunity, not just an obstacle to get over so that life could carry on. As many of us are hoping that the trial will pass so that we can keep going and do the things we once did. Now, Paul saw this trial and he said, no, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to re remove from me something that is not meant to be welcome in my soul. It's called self-reliance. It's called self-reliance. Now, there's so many other ways we could rely on ourselves, but I've, I want to suggest two main ways that our generation are being told, you can rely on yourself. You have the strength. And, and I think Paul would say, be careful. Be careful of this. The, the first way and danger is, is the danger of a kind of poisonous positivity. A poisonous positivity. Kate Bowler wrote a fantastic book. She's the author of Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And when she was interviewed by the New York Times, she said this, the idea that we're all supposed to be positive all the time has become an American obsession. It gives us momentum and purpose to feel like the best is yet to come. But the problem is when it becomes a kind of poison in which it expects that people who are suffering, which is pretty much everyone right now, are somehow always supposed to find the silver lining or not speak realistically about their circumstances. The main problem is that it adds shame to suffering by just requiring everyone to be prescriptively joyful. If I see one more millionaire on Instagram yell that she is choosing joy while selling journals in which stay-at-home moms are supposed to write joy mantras, I am going to lose my mind. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that speaks so true into this kind of uh, poisonous positivity that can drive us into an unrealistic life that isn't able to give, give credence to some of the real pains that we feel. Hey, I'm, again, not saying that we shouldn't be optimistic and stay hopeful, but, but that's the very thing. Paul is pushing us towards hope, not towards a positivity that relies on our own strength to muster up an emotional experience that might not be there. Hey, another danger could be that we over-rely on our personal plans and not on God's promises. I think of what John Mark Comer says um, in, in, dangerous, in the danger of sort of relying on our own planning. He says, instead of hoping in God's future, we make plans for our own future. In our secular society, planning has taken over the role of hoping. As a result, many of us live with a chronic sense of disappointment whenever our plans do not work out. And isn't that true of our generation? How much the sort of disappointment gap between what we had planned and what we got, and that gap tends to be filled with disappointment and frustration. It's a real danger in our generation. 
that we rely on our own positivity and our own planning. And Paul says, no. Sometimes trials are given to us to learn to rely less on ourselves and, and more on God. Now, I know that in some ways, and I ask this question myself, you might be asking, but what's wrong with self-reliance anyway? Is there a problem with self-reliance? I trust myself. I'm, I've got a good education. I'm fairly strong. I seem to be fairly capable. Well, well, maybe I can suggest this first of all, is to say that Paul isn't writing here to say that Jesus is going to help you to tie your shoelaces and, and brush your teeth and, and that uh, you, know, you, you just need to do nothing in life and everything's going to come your way. You just rely on him and he will carry you through with his angels. No, no, the point is not that. No, we've been given fantastic agency in the world by God's design to do magnificent things. Hey, the danger, I think, is when we try to take control when we try to be in control of, of the matters of life, when we think our planning or our positivity can bring about a whole different outcome and that we are in control of God's world, when in fact He is. You may be familiar with Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 11 where He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. And He carries on and He says, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus often acknowledges that life in this world is tough. But the best way to live in a tough world is not to depend on ourselves and carry the weight of all the myriad of things we simply just can't control, but it's to trust them to Him. Another way to look at Jesus' teaching combined with Paul's teaching here on and taking trials might be to look at it like this. Receive trials as opportunities. Live like you're not in control because ignoring trials and pain will either leave you hard hurt or hard to relate to. And staying in control of them is a difficult burden beyond your or my ability to bear. A yoke you are not designed to carry. A yoke we're not designed to carry. Being in control through our own mustering up of strength and trying our best to stay in control is not God's design for you or I. And sometimes trials are the only way that God can pry out of our white-knuckled, strong fists that sense of control to say, actually, we're not in control. And I would suggest that 7 billion-odd people on the face of the earth are finding themselves needing to go, okay, maybe I'm not in control. Hey, the second evidence of a hope-filled life is that trials begin to be received as opportunities to trust in God's deliverance. Trials begin to be received as opportunities to trust in God's deliverance. Listen to what Paul carries on and says. He says, But that was to make, not, uh, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Isn't there such beautiful hope in that? Can you pick up Paul's expectation that God is a delivering God, that he has his life sandwiched between he is risen and he is returning and he is right here, right now with you and I in a beautiful way. It's the news that comes to infuse his present with so much hope that he can't help but see that God is a delivering God. And I hope today that you too can see that he is a delivering God. You see this beautiful line where Paul simply says, that was not to make us rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
He looks back at the news. The news informs his present. He is risen. And I know that if he rose Jesus from the dead, he's able to deliver you and I. So there's, there's a few things. You see, Paul doesn't seem to imply that the natural next step, if I stop relying on myself, that I will naturally rely on God. That may be, and, and I hope that's the truth, the truth for you. But sometimes it's not always true. There's, there's the possibility that we could stop relying on self and a trial comes our way. But instead of looking up, we look out. And we might find that there's different things that we try to find a kind of deliverance in. Maybe it's differing types of ventures, cash, people, career, cash to deliver some sort of security in our life. We'll need money, right? People to deliver support networks that we can lean on in times of trouble. Or a career to just be able to know that there is one sure thing in our lives. Sometimes there's these ventures that we think may deliver us. And we're all prone to, to considering these may be a kind of deliverer. And we feel vulnerable when they're under threat. Hey, there's also escapes that we can believe are types of deliverers. Think of the acronym FAME. FAME. If you're wondering, what are the escapes that we sometimes are tending towards believing might deliver us? Food. Food. We sometimes just lean into to gorging ourselves, binging, thinking that if we get it, we can escape. Or alcohol. And maybe other drugs that include could be a kind of escape that might deliver us if at least just for a little while. Or media. Netflix, social media, whatever it is that you might choose. They could be a kind of escape that could deliver us. These are short-term escapes to try to get away from the, the potential pain or, or threat of some of the realities of the things going around us. Or entertainment. Maybe it's weekends away. Not going to happen anytime soon. But all kinds of differing entertainment as escapes that may deliver us from some of the internal pressures we're feeling. Paul says, don't worry. Don't go there. Don't, don't, don't look to other deliverers because he does deliver and he will deliver again. Hey, what are you hoping in? Maybe I, before I go there, when, are, when, are, when is it a problem? When can we say, I'm, I'm, de I'm depending too much on these, these things to deliver me when I should be depending? How do I know I'm depending too much? Let me suggest it's fairly simple. When you plan your day ahead, and you think that you need one of those things more than you need God and His presence and His help, it's probably a sure sign you're depending on them more than you're depending on God. Or you maybe just look at the pattern of your life and you find that actually hope in the good news that He is risen and He is returning and that He's right here right now, that hope in that good news begins to subside and personal plans and, 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 and desire to stay in control begin to reside. Hey, when, when that happens, when the good news subsides and personal plans start to take residence in your soul, hey, let the alarm bells go off and say, hey, I need to go back to a dependency on God. Third evidence of this hope-filled life is when our trials turn us into prayer-filled communities. Don't you just love this final verse where Paul writes and he says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. It's a fairly complicated sentence, actually. And what, what exactly is Paul saying? My suggestion is that he's saying something pretty simple. He's saying, hey, guys, pray for us. Pray for the work of God in the world. Because you know what? That prayer is going to cause a whole bunch of other people to go, wow, 
prayer really works. God really is at work in the world. There's this conviction that the blessing that comes from prayer is going to cause people to turn their heads and say, where did that come from? Hey, I, I, I remember the first wave I ever rode. Oh, man, what, a, what an amazing experience. I'll, I'll never forget it. Addington Beach, probably 25 years ago. It's a, no secret, I love surfing. If you've known me for any time, you've only, some of you only known me for 25 odd minutes, and now you know I love surfing. But my uh, sort of love for surfing was birthed on that very first wave. I'll never forget standing up, Addington Beach in Durban, and I got up on a, on a wave and felt the thrill of sliding along water, being propelled at a speed I never knew possible. And I found myself going, I want to do this as long as I can. It was thrilling. Shoot forward a, about a decade. I came to faith in Jesus, realized this good news really is true. He, he really is risen. He really is resurrected and he really will return. And sandwiched in between that is my little life that seems to have purpose once again. Wow. I put my faith in Jesus and began to follow him and deal with the implications that he really is the king and discovered that prayer is a real thing. I'll never forgive it, forget uh, sitting on the, the stairs of the Moravian church outside Cape Technicon, as it was known at that time, with my buddy George. And we discovered what it felt like to partner with God and each other in prayer, to get on that wave and realize that our words are being aligned to the heart of God to bring about transformation in the world. And we began to include other people into this journey of prayer. And as we began to pray, we began to watch God responding to our prayers. And the wave of His grace began to crash one upon the next. And we began to realize that prayer is on the heart of God. I don't know if you know how to pray. I don't know if you're new to prayer. I don't know if you've been praying for a long time. If you have, then tell people what's happening and why it's so magnificent. Include people in your prayer life. If you don't know how to pray, ask someone who does to teach you. Learn to pray by yourself. Learn to pray in groups. But my goodness, don't Go another day without someone teaching you how to pray. Paul calls us as a community, as communities dotted across the city and across the world to be a praying people. Hey, let's pray. Let's pray. Let's catch that wave and let's be ruined for the glories of prayer for the rest of our lives. Let me land by telling you a story. You may have heard this one, but it speaks of hope in a magnificent way. Horatio Spafford, 1871. Had a beautiful family, four daughters and a wife. And uh, a tragic thing happened. A Chicago fire ravaged through the, the city of Chicago, damaging uh, most of uh, Spafford's uh, property. It was a devastating moment for, for him and his family. And uh, uh, two years later, 1873, they decided that they were going to take a bit of time out and uh, go to Europe and join a, a friend of theirs who was a preacher in, in England and just spend some time trying to deal with some of the pain that they'd been through. Uh, because so much business uh, strife had been going on, he couldn't leave with his family. And so he sent them on ahead on a ship. The tragic news came to him not a few weeks later that the ship had gone down. His wife wrote him a note and said, saved alone. All four of his daughters had gone under. I think having three daughters of my own makes me realize the, the weight of what that might feel like as a father. And yet into that incredible moment, Spafford pulls himself towards God 
No doubt he remembers this incredible news that sandwiches his life and informs his present. He notifies his wife that he's on his way to England to be with her, to grieve with her at the loss of their four daughters. And as he gets onto that ship, and as he gets close to the place where they say uh, the ship went down, as he's on the Atlantic, he writes not just a prayer, as I encouraged us, he writes a song. He writes a song that's filled with hope, that's filled with conviction. He writes the famous song that now 150 years later we still sing and will sing in a couple of minutes' time. The song is called, It Is Well With My Soul. He managed in that moment of great tragedy to remind himself with the help of the Holy Spirit that he was sandwiched between the greatest news, that something had happened. He is risen, and He is returning, and He is right here, right now, with me. And some of the words of His beautiful song go as follows. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. He was an ordinary human just like us. The only thing he knew was that he was sandwiched between this good news. And he had the ability in trials to realize that a trial was an opportunity, not just an obstacle. An opportunity not to depend on himself, but to depend on God. To uproot a sense of self-reliance and, and to become a reliant person on God the Deliverer. I wonder today, as we move towards singing this song together, if you need to maybe take a moment to reflect on, on where you're at with regards to this good news. Have you, have you seen that he has risen? And have you seen that he's returning? And have you allowed that story, that news, which is far better than any advice you could ever give, to begin to let the implications start to soak into who you are so that trials become opportunities, so that prayer becomes a possibility for God to work in and through your life in profound ways. We're going to take a moment just to reflect on, the, uh, on our lives and take a moment just to contemplate what is God doing with us right now? And then we're going to sing this song together. And, and whether you would like to uh, potentially sing this song with or just reflect on the words and let them wash over you, I believe God wants to minister to you today and put hope into you, a hope that is an experience and it's a joyful one at that. And that he can make sense of all the madness going on around us as he sandwiches us in his love. He is risen. He's returning. And he's right here with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are right here, right now with us. And we pray that dotted around this city, dotted around the world, that the good news would infuse our hearts with a fresh hope. That you would show us your beautiful kindness and that you would hold us in your love. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.